Uh, before we get into the text this morning, let me just uh, commend you for some things here. Since I was here last, a lot of things have happened around here that uh, you just need to, you need to mark milestones. Isn't that a good thing? You don't want to let things pass without saying, you know what, there's some good stuff going on around here. Um, being able to keep the focus of this church sharply set has been a wonderful thing to watch. Uh, coming back and forth, talking to different folks here, uh, getting a search committee selected, that's huge. That's a big, big Kudo, way to go on that. And having Dr. McQuite come and be your interim pastor has been a great thing. And progress being made to keep a strong ministry staff and the children's uh, pastor coming aboard. It's just a lot of good stuff like that going on. And I, I was reading here in the, in the bulletin that, uh, that my title is the Transitional Consultant. <laughs> what in the world is that? Um, but if I'm a visitor here this morning and I see that the transitional consultant is preaching, I'm taking a little no-dose or something to figure out how we're going to be able to get through the next 45 minutes. But uh, should be 45 minutes? I thought you said 15. But we're going to look at that together. But my job, and you'll see me around here for the next few months, I'm not directing traffic or anything. So relax. Uh, this, is, this is your church, not mine, and I'm not trying to bring in something from Raleigh and impose it here. Uh, my job is sort of as a sounding board, uh, ask questions and let you uh, think through what the answers are for, for this church, uh, coaching, uh, and more than anything else, just being a cheerleader, just being able to have a lot of way to goes involved in the process. So there's going to be a lot of good stuff coming up in the, in the next few months. And so uh, as I'm praying for you and for your search committee as these transitions are going on, this can be a nerve-wracking time or an incredibly exciting time. For some people here, that's nerve-wracking thinking to Christmas being just 23 days away. I'm not saying it's a pressure, but, you know, that's a nerve-wracking thing. But for most people here, there's that sense of excitement that it's coming. And so you can choose how you want to view this transition period uh, between now and when the new pastor comes on board as a nerve-wracking time or a period of incredible anticipation. I'm choosing the latter for you, and so I'm grateful for that. Now, as we approach the text today... I'm always fascinated by the way the Lord orchestrates things, uh, the way he orders things. And so when I was here last time, uh, yeah, I was said, now, they're reading through the Bible this year, and there's a plan laid out for how they're doing that. And so they're reading a, an assigned portion each week, and then the sermons are coming after that. And, and, uh, and then I violated that the last time I preached and p- preached something else. Uh, today I'm going to be a good boy. And I'm in Ephesians chapter 4 because many of you were reading in Ephesians this week. And so we want to look at that passage together, and I'm excited about this because this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture because it follows Paul's leadership in helping us understand where the church is supposed to be going. What a, what a key passage at a time like this for Taylor's. He wants to be able to say to us, this is how a congregation functions. As a matter of fact, in a letter later on to the pastor at the church in Ephesus, to Timothy, uh, in his letter to them, he says, now I'm, I'm giving you this instruction after he tells them about the elders and the deacons of the church and what their qualifications are supposed to be. He says, I'm telling you this so that the church will know how it ought to function. That's good to know that in the scriptures, Paul sets out specifically in his letters to the churches to say, I want you to know how the churches ought to function. 
So that was to the pastor later on. This is a letter to the entire congregation to be read publicly for them to hear what he has to say. And so just to give you an idea of where we're going, uh, the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is laying out doctrinal factions. Here's, here are the things you need to understand about why we believe what we believe. This is what the gospel is. This is what God has done. These are the riches of his blessings. This is the glorious picture of his inheritance for the saints in Christ. And he lays that out in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then when he gets to chapter 4, which is where we're going to be this morning, he starts with the word, I therefore. Therefore what? Based on what we've said about the doctrines of faith in the first three chapters, the first portion of this letter I've written to you, therefore I urge you, I'm a prisoner for the Lord, and I'm urging you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So how do we do that? Well, let's look down, beginning in verse 11, and that's going to give us the the text for our message today. We're going to then pray together and then launch in and see what God has in store for us. You ready for that? You don't have any choice. You're you're here, right? Uh, It's raining outside. You're here and dry. We're going to have a great time. Let's listen to what he says. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, or the pastor teachers, for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or to be fully grown people, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That, ladies and gentlemen, is an awesome text, and I get to preach it. I'm so excited. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the incredible clarity of your word Thank you for the privilege of being able to open this book and know that on any page that we look, there is sound counsel, great wisdom in unfolding for us what your plans are for us, but more than anything else, Father, for revealing to us the wonder, the splendor, the glory of who you are. May we see Christ, and as we are seeking to grow up to maturity and becoming like him, may we do so as Paul says here, in a manner that's really actually worthy of him. So, Father, thank you for this privilege in Christ's name. Amen. We live in an age of battery-powered everything. Uh, Most of you are sitting there with some kind of battery-powered instrument on your person. Uh, Used to be that when you had a watch, you actually had to, children, this is going to be a mystery to you, but you actually had to wind it up. Right. So this, this concept is alien to you. It's funny seeing kids uh, on a YouTube video trying to figure out what to do with a rotary dial phone. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do with it. They were punching the buttons. They didn't know what to do with this thing. And so neither would they know what to do with a watch that you wind up. But a couple of blocks from where I grew up, there was a place called Frank's Jewelry. 
And Frank's Jewelry had a display in their store. And my friend Jan's uh, dad owned this place. And so I'd go over there once in a while. And it was, it was a huge watch sort of expanded so you could see how the thing worked. And the back of it was, was plexiglass or glass or whatever it was. So you could see all the gears and all the springs and all the wheels turning. Fascinating. I was, I was watching this thing thinking, this is amazing. But here's the deal. Every single one of those pieces had to work properly and in sequence in order for the, for the watch to keep good time. Right? So if one piece of it messes up, it doesn't keep time. It may just completely stop or it may just lose time or advance time and not keep accurate time. But every single piece of that thing had to work well. That's exactly what Paul just said to us in verse 16. That which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part builds up the body of Christ together. In other words, you don't get a day off ever as a follower of Christ. I had a cousin one time, we told her we were going on vacation. She says, oh, good, I'm sure as a pastor, it's great to have some vacation from God sometimes. What? What? You, nobody has a vacation from God. Pastors are no one. Why? Because we're always on duty. That, that little spinner wheel, that little gear, that little spring, whatever it is, that's making us all work together. We don't have days off. And here's the thing. If you take a day off, somebody's got to carry your load. And that's not the way God designed the church to work. It's a glorious thing to see teams working together. It was interesting. I was telling Kathy, this is fascinating because when I was writing the message, I didn't know that this was the start of your missions prayer time, and I didn't know you were going to have a, a little video with J.D., uh, but, but here's what I was going to tell you about. We had an occasion back in the, uh, the winter of 2006 to take a team of people over to Central Asia. We went to a, a city called Antalya, Turkey, and we were there for the annual, annual general meeting for the Central Asian section of the International Mission Board, and all the missionaries from that region came down to Antalya for their annual meeting. Actually, it's far less than annual. It's more periodic than that. It, it happens to be several years apart. But we went there to be able to minister to them and to be able to give them some time to be able to get away from some very hard places. And I'm talking about some really hard places, countries that, that you read on the news where there's constantly some kind of warfare going on, somebody being killed, somebody being martyred, somebody being imprisoned. That's where they were coming out from. There were 800 of them. We took a team of 187 people to Antalya, Turkey. Now, before you start feeling really bad, oh, Antalya, Turkey, way over there. No, it's on the Mediterranean. It was sweet. I mean, it was a great place to be. But we took 187 people, and I was, I was watching this whole thing unfold, and this was like a well-oiled machine. It was like a finely tuned watch where 187 people showed up in Antalya. Every one of them had an agenda. Every one of them had been trained. Everyone knew what he or she was going to do. We had doctors and nurses who were going to, um, to take care of some physical needs there. We had dentists who were going. We had a chiropractors. We had all kinds of medical folks there to do what they needed to do. We had psychologists and counselors because there were some people there who needed some help. Uh, some families who had actually seen people killed right in front of them uh, by, by terrorists. There, there, were, there were needs that were there. There were computer uh, needs because some of the folks were 
in a place where they had no access to the outside world except through the occasional opportunities to have internet access back home. And so we took a team of, of IT people to help fix their uh, computers. And in and, and one particular case, their computer was so old and so outdated that our computer team just sort of went, you know what, boom, tossed it and gave them a new one that they had brought with them for just such an occasion. Uh, their parents back home in Alabama got word before we even left that they had been given a computer. This family had been saving money for the better part of a year to buy a computer to send to their kids over in Central Asia. And they wrote uh, a note that was just dripping with tears, thanking uh, the IT team for what they did. We had a youth camp. Guess who spoke at our youth camp for those kids? JD. It was so crazy. It was like, what? JD's on the screen. And, and all this stuff went on. And we had hairdressers. We had, we had youth camp vacation. It was all going on. It was just an incredible week. And I'm sitting there watching all of this unfold with Ephesians 4 in my mind. That which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part for the building up of the body of Christ. Folks, we have missionary kids come to Christ that week. What? Missionary kids come to Christ? Yeah, missionary kids need to come to Christ too. Preacher's kids need to come to Christ too. It's a glorious week. And as I'm thinking about that, I know you guys have sent mission teams out there, and, and, and I, I understand. But isn't it wonderful to watch it happen? But as J.D. said, what happens is that if, when we go, we get this sense of mission. We get this sense of purpose. We get this sense of, yes, yes, we're going to do this. And then we come back home and go like, ah, glad that's over, man. It was great, but I'm sure glad I'm back home where I don't have to do nothing no more. What Bible are you reading? No, it is all in all ways for the body of Christ. And so as we look at this passage this morning, and what I want us to do is just to kind of take a, a brief picture of, of this as a snapshot, and particularly at this juncture in the life of this congregation, to be able to reaffirm what you already know, to be able to understand that these are the things that God has laid out there for us and that you get to do it. It's, it's not a matter of, of this being a questionable or debatable point. This, this is just clear as it can possibly be. This is God's design. And so when the first three chapters are unfolding, Paul is just outlining, explaining our call to redemption. We are redeemed people. We are the glorious, called, chosen, elect ones of God set apart to represent him until he comes, and we are one body growing up to be more like Jesus every day, and then to bear witness to the glory of Christ, to the dark places around us, and to be able to come and worship him and have our voices joined together in adoration and praise of the King of glory. And it doesn't matter what tongue or what rhythm or what accompaniment or what the nature of the, of the message is in song. It is God's message of praise and worship. So he says, here's, here's how we want to explain this thing. Let me just walk you through, he's saying. He says, you have been adopted through Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He said, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. You have been adopted by God, and he gives you the privilege of calling him Abba, Father. That's who you are. He says, you've been made alive in Christ in chapter 2, verse 1. Even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he made us alive together with Christ by grace. You've been saved. He did that for you. You were dead 
And Christ made you alive. You were given a purpose by God. Not a question of you trying to figure out how I'm supposed to live in this crazy world. He says, no, 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 this is not a question. You were created by God, for God, and in and through him, you have your being. You have a purpose through him. So in chapter 1, verses 9 and following, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we've obtained an inheritance, and we have been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is our purpose. He said, this is who you are. This is how you understand your identity. In verse 19 of chapter 1, he says, you've been strengthened in Christ. Verse 19, he says, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Chapter 3, verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Well, now you can just see. I mean, this is just a highlight of four different things Paul is saying to us here. This is who we are. This is the theological foundation for the church. This is our identity, our purpose, our calling, our strength, our power, our life. All this has been given to us. Chapter 4, he says, therefore, I'm a prisoner of Christ. I am a slave of the master king. I am the one who has been called into his ministry, to his service, and I want you to understand something. I'm urging you to get this. Walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. In layman's terms, don't screw this up. I think that's the Greek. No, it's not just don't mess with this. Just, this, is, this is so important. So he says, here, let me help you understand this. Verse 12, you are equipped together for works of service. Verse 12, why, why are pastor teachers given? Why are prophets, apostles, and evangelists? Why are they given? That you could be equipped for the work of service. More about that in a minute. You were built together like that watch, you have, been, you have been constructed by God in such a way that the equipping of the saints for the work of service actually effectively builds up the body of Christ in unity until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You're built together. This is again, this is chapter 4. Verse 13 again, let me say it again. He says, you're growing together. You're, you're not growing apart. You're growing together because your testimony is one testimony. We are the body of Christ. This is our identity. We're therefore growing up together. No man, no woman left behind. We're all in it together. No stragglers, no observers, no spectators. All of us growing together. And then verse 16, we're being held together <clears throat> by the labors of love that God has given us to share together. He says, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies causes the body to grow, building itself up in love. Now, those are the background pieces. Some of you are saying, no, that's the whole sermon right there. No, no, that's just preliminary. That's just the foundation because now what we want to do is, is to look at the, the application 
of these things. What is, what is our calling? <clears throat> In practice, what, is that, what does that look like? Well, there are a couple of major points and then some major sub-points. So let's just follow this through carefully. First point, what that means is each one of us is a minister of Christ. You got that? No, no, David, you're the minister. Yeah, I am because I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor because of my calling. You understand the difference? You are a minister also. <clears throat> when we started our church, um, this, this point was very important for us to, to not let people get confused about this. So, so we never allowed any of our pastors to be called the minister of anything. We didn't have a minister of music. We didn't have a minister of youth. We didn't have the senior minister. We didn't have ministers of education. We didn't have ministers of nothing because we were everybody ministers of everything. And we had a visitor early on in our first few years. We were still meeting in an elementary school cafeteria. And this lady was visiting, and she says, oh, are you the minister here? And I said, no, ma'am, I'm just one of them. And she looks at me thinking, uh, dude, you're meeting in an elementary school cafeteria, and you've got more ministers than just you? And I'm saying, no, 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 man, I know. I just dumped the truck on you. All you wanted to know is am I the guy who preaches on Sunday? Yes, I am. But here's our philosophy. Here's our understanding of the scriptures. All of the members of the congregation are ministers. Do you get that? Do you understand that? Now, I don't care what you call them, uh, who are on your staff, and you can call them ministers, whatever. We just chose to call those people our pastors so that people in the congregation wouldn't be confused to thinking that they're the ministers and we're the ministries. We're the ones that they minister to. No, that's not the way it works. All of you, every single one of you, are ministers of Jesus Christ. How do you like that? You just got promoted. Some of you. Some of you are going like, it's about time somebody recognized that. Either way, it's not a position, a title, an honor, except the honor of belonging to Christ and being able to serve faithfully in his name. The word minister, typically in this context and other places throughout the New Testament, comes from a word that we're very familiar with in English. It's the word deacon. Diakonia, diakoneo is the, is the Greek word. And it just means serve. In both places, it shows up in this passage. You don't see the word deacon showing up here. You see the word showing up as serving or servant. It's that word, diakonia, diakoneo. Servant, every one of us is a minister of Christ. John 12, 26, Jesus says, if anyone serves me, there's that same word, diakonia again. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We're servants. Okay? Now, that's, that's simple. We, we got that. That's not hard to prove biblically, and it's not hard to, to prove experientially. We all have to understand that we're ministers. Here's the tricky part. <clears throat> not only is each one of us a minister, what does that mean practically? You got it. Each one of us has a ministry. Now, it's fine just having an honorary title. <laughs> You're saying I actually have to do something? That's right. You have to function in ministry. I don't want to function in ministry. And Jesus says, are you saying you don't want to follow me? No, I want to follow you, Jesus. Then you are following me into the ministry that I'm giving you. 
How you feel about that? Not too good. <laughs> I just like to come to church on Sunday morning and hear a short sermon and go home. No, that's not the option. There is a 2080 experience that goes on in most of the churches in the Western world where 20% of the people in the church do 80% of the ministry and 80% sit on the sidelines going, you go. I'm so proud of you. I would not be a part of a church that's not a ministering church as long as they don't want me to do the ministry. No, that's not a biblical pattern remotely understood according to God's word. That's not the way it works. We have to understand that, no, each one of us has a ministry. Now, is this an eccentric understanding of Ephesians 4? Well, no. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, even as the body is one and yet has many members, all of the members of the body, although there are many, are one body, and so also is Christ. We're all members in this together. We're all part of the one body of Christ. Romans 12, same kind of thing. Just as there are many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us exercise them accordingly. Ephesians 4, back to where we are here. Yeah, this is the whole body fitted, held together, but that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part except you. No, it doesn't say except you. Each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Well, here's what we hope is true, what we hope we understand. God hopes that we understand this to the point that we are called by the grace of God to be his ministers, his servants, and to fulfill our ministry. Now, what does that look like? Well, there looks like to me in this passage, there are four different aspects of that that we've got to come to grips with for us to be effective as a church. Four different pieces of it that we've got to pay attention to because they hang together. And if you omit any one of them, your, your ministry is not going to happen. The ministry of this church will fall on its face. The calling of a new pastor will not correct the problem. The getting of the best music program in the world will not change the issue. Getting the most comprehensively organized infrastructure of the organization and governance of the church is not going to fix it if these four things are not in place. So what, what are those things in this passage? He says, the first piece is that there is a spiritual giftedness and calling that God gives to each one of us to be able to fulfill our ministry. You are gifted by God for the ministry that he's given you. Each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift for us. You have spiritual gifts or at least a spiritual gift. Now, this sermon is not going to be going into the understanding and how to identify and how to recognize what your spiritual gift is. And your spiritual gift may not show up on the list in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians and elsewhere. But God has given every one of us spiritual gifts pertaining to the area of ministry that he has given us. So we want to understand, Lord, let me be faithful in fulfilling the purpose that you have given me and to recognize that, yes, Lord, I do 
appreciate and value the fact that you have given me a calling and a giftedness fulfilled the calling that is an exciting adventure for me. I have been called by God and equipped by God, gifted by God to fulfill my eternal purpose through Christ. Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? I've never taken that inventory. I've never done that test. Well, take some time. Figure it out. Starting point is where is your passion? We'll get to that in a second. But what is your, your calling? What is it that you feel like God has uniquely gifted you to do? Watch. No, no. you got good eyes. you got a gift of watching. No, that's not an option. He says, what is it that you're called to do by way of your ministry? Whatever that passion is that he's given you, you're going to look around and see that God has uniquely gifted you to be able to do that. So our calling comes with our gifting to be able to do what God's called us to do. The second picture is, he says, what has to happen is that if we're going to attain to this unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to a maturity, we've got to have spiritual character and conduct that's consistent with the character and conduct of Christ. In other words, you can't be mean for Jesus. That doesn't work. I'm going to do this. I don't care who I have to hurt to have it happen. No. you got some folks in the churches around our country who aren't interested if you... If you're really willing to die for Christ, they're interested. Would you kill for him? (laughs) No, that's not the question. Would you be mean for Jesus? Well, I had to do that because the, the means are necessary to accomplish the end. Never is that the case in Christ. We're to grow up to maturity in Christ. We are to grow up and be created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Friends, if if you're not looking to do the ministry that God's given you with a holy heart, and if there's not a sweetness of grace in how you're trying to do your ministry, and if there's a self-interest in what you're trying to accomplish, you have failed the second criteria. There must be an evidence of Christ-likeness, growing up in the true character of Jesus, in true righteousness and holiness before God. And until your life is holy and until you have gotten your life in order so that you're walking in a manner worthy of Christ, you're disqualified from ministry. Friends, we are living in a very, very sad time. On the way down here yesterday, Kathy was reading me the news account of a a nationally known preacher who lost everything because his preaching and his practices were diametrically opposed to each other. He was doing things that were unworthy of Christ. He was thinking things and operating in ministry as if he were above all of that. And I can name chapter and verse of guys all over the country that in my 40 years of ministry, I've watched it happen, heartbroken as I've watched it happen, and also keenly warned by what I've seen happen. But without spiritual character and conduct that has been reformed by Christ, no one can take you seriously as someone fulfilling your ministry if your life is out of order in Christ. You've got to walk with Jesus. And there's got to be the brightness of the light, of the shining of the glory of God in the face of Christ that's reflected through you if you're going to be in ministry for his glory. So we have to have that spiritual giftedness and calling Understood. We have to have spiritual character and godly conduct. Third, we've got to have the sense of spiritual sacrifice and service. 
Not only do you have a calling from the Lord to a particular area, to a particular kind of ministry, but you have given God opportunity to speak into your heart and say, you don't have to have the spiritual gift to be a servant. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in churches that doesn't require spiritual giftedness. It requires servant hearts. I don't have a spiritual gift of working in the nursery. Guess what? Very few people do. But guess what? Any one of you can change a diaper. I don't think so, preacher. Well, there's probably laws about that now or policies about that somehow or another. But there's a way that you can serve. I'm not called to be out there in that parking lot in the rain on Sunday mornings. It's raw. It's messy out there. I'm not called to do that. You don't have to be called. You just have to be sacrificial and serve and go after it. It's a calling of God. Take the low place. Find the place which is where you will present your bodies, this is Romans 12, as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. No, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. And say, well, that's beneath my dignity. There ain't nothing beneath your dignity. We serve a Savior who crawled around on his hands and knees washing the nasty feet of his disciples on the day before he was arrested. Uh, we, we can't trot that out. Well, that's beneath my dignity. Uh, if anybody had a right to ever say that, it was Jesus. And he said, instead of that, you're not blessed if you know these things. You're blessed if you see what I'm saying and do them. That's what I'm saying. So he says, we've got to have this spirit of sacrifice. We've got to be ready to step up the game. And it's not about me. It's not about what I prefer. It's not about what I like more. It's not about how I would craft it if I were in the design chair. I am a servant of the master, and therefore I hear from God and his appointed leadership in the church. I listen, and I assume the posture of servant. I love the line. Just preached about this a few weeks ago, that, that line that says, you want to know if you're a servant of Christ? Ask yourself the question, how do you respond when someone treats you like a servant? Ain't nobody treating me that way. Well, then you're not a servant yet because a servant just serves and doesn't worry about how they're being treated. Sacrificial service and sacrificial spirituality is what is characterized by these people. Spiritual giftedness and calling, spiritual character and conduct, spiritual service and sacrifice. And lastly, fourthly, spiritual preparation and practice. It's time to get up and get out. He says, here's what has to happen. You're going to be prepared. You're going to be equipped. You've got to be made ready for the tasks and the callings at hand. He lists in verse 11 different groups. He talks here about, about the, the, the people who are given to the church as apostles and prophets and evangelists. All those are doing their ministry primarily outside the context of local church. And then he comes to the pastor teachers in the last part of verse 11. He says, now all of these folks are there to be able to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That whole idea of equipping breaks down into different pieces. But, but here's the thing that we need to understand. God wants us to not set apart the ministers as if that was some kind of special office or to say that the pastors are supposed to do the work of the ministry. That's what we hired them to do. You did not hire them to do the ministry. As a matter of fact, you didn't hire them at all. You have found a way for the congregation to support their families and their lives so that they can devote themselves wholeheartedly to equipping you to do the work of the ministry. It's not the way I understand it. 
well, this is the Bible, and this is what it says. I think we ought to probably understand it the way he says it. So here he says, this is what the calling is, to be equipped for the work of the ministry. God has given us pastor teachers who are going to do that. Now, when we get to 2 Timothy chapter 3, he gives us the tools by which we are to be equipped. So he says here, you're to be equip the saints for the work of the service for the building of the body of Christ. How in the world is anybody going to equip everybody to be able to do that? Much less some pastor teacher who doesn't know how to function in, in the banking industry, who doesn't know how to work in the educational industry, who doesn't know how to be a mom. And pastor doesn't know all that. No, but he has been called to give you a steady diet of the word of God. And so when Paul is writing to Timothy as the pastor of this church in chapter Three of his second letter to him, he says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for, for, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? Verse 17, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What's the pastor teacher supposed to do? He's supposed to teach you the word of God. He's supposed to have the influence on your life to be able to pour the scriptures into you, teaching you and training you and modeling for you what this is supposed to look like. And, and therefore, it is necessary that we take time to look in the Word. This whole idea, I was preaching in a church in India several years ago, and it was an Anglican church, and it was a, it was a very strictly liturgical institution. I said, well, how much time do I have? You have eight minutes. I can't say my name in eight minutes. He says, yeah, yeah, eight, eight minutes. Thinking, what, what happened here? When a church exists and they give the pastor teacher eight minutes to expound the word of God? No, 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 no. No. Unless you want sermonettes for Christianettes, you better give time for the preaching of the word to build up the body of Christ. You got to have time to expound the scriptures. We used to have guys who would come up to me and say, preacher. You can't say it in 25 minutes. You ought not even try. Some of you went, amen. Amen. Don't you say it. You just embarrass yourself. And I said, how did your seminary professor, how did your college professor, how did your high school teacher, how did they feel about that? About what? If they couldn't say it in 20 minutes, they shouldn't say it. Well, that's different. Yeah, because that mattered and this doesn't. No, no, no. These are the words of eternal life. Listen to the word of God so that you can be equipped. We're not looking to just make smarter sinners and giving you information. We're not interested in giving you moving stories just for inspiration. The preacher, teacher, the, the word of God is delivered through that, that voice and those who are teachers in the congregation in order not for inspiration only or information, although both of those are a part of it, but it's for transformation changed lives for ministers of the gospel of Christ. So yeah, these equippers, spiritual preparation and practice have got to be given the high priority. And then they're calling you to be servants and helping folks. Once we're taught, we have to apply what we're learning and get on with a calling to serve, to help, to pursue the will of Christ Jesus. No, no. It's not just helping people and leaving Jesus out, or learning verses about Jesus and leaving servanthood out. It's about being able to be the whole man or woman of God he intended you to be and incorporate the transforming truths of the gospel 
so that you're a minister for Christ's sake. And then you have a purpose and a passion that matters, a great passion and a great delight in knowing God and knowing what brings pleasure to his heart. Chapter 5, verse 10 says that we, we need to be trying to learn what pleases the Lord. We've got to learn how to do that doesn't matter the greatness or the smallness of the assignment. If God gave it to you, it's the most important thing in the world. So how do we wrap this thing up? Well, bottom line is it means that all of us have to find our place in ministry. (laughs) That's what bottom line means. All of us need to find a way to get engaged there. So what, what does that mean? Well, it means that if I'm not doing my part, somebody else is having to double up to cover my spot and theirs. That's not right. That's not fair. That's not biblical. So we all find our place, and we all get in the way Christ has prescribed it. So how does this work? First of all, we all need to become spiritual entrepreneurs for Christ. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. I wonder what in the world is that? It means that you find your passion and pursue it. What makes you weep and pound the table for Christ? What is that passion that drives you? Then in the most godly, biblical way, in a manner worthy of Christ, pursue that thing. Don't let go of it. Well, the church isn't committed to doing that. Who said the church has to be committed? If you're a part of the church and you're doing it, we had multiple ministries that arose out of our congregation because people had passions that didn't match the agenda of our church, but they surely supported the concepts and ideals about it. And so they went out on their own, spiritual entrepreneurs, pursuing their passion, fully embraced, equipped, and loved by the church and what they were doing. Church doesn't have to do it. If you go hard after it, find what it is. Find your passion, pursue it. Secondly, Be a humble servant for Christ. Find what needs to be done and go about figuring out how to do it. It may not be this big deal where everybody notices it. I shared with our congregation in Raleigh a few weeks ago. Back many years ago, I preached on a Sunday morning about this whole matter of servanthood. I said exactly what I just said. Find a need that needs to be fulfilled and then go fulfill it. Preach the word. Go on to the next week and preach, preach, preach. Several weeks later, after the service, I looked back, and it was one of our older gentlemen, well into his 80s. His years of working in industry were gone. His, his years of serving, teaching, or doing whatever else in the church were gone. He was just a faithful, faithful brother. And I was talking to somebody after the service, and I look, and Glenn is going back and forth, back of the church, one row after another. I'm thinking, what in the world is he doing? I mean, I know about dimension and stuff, but he's got to be able to know how to get out of here. He doesn't have to go up and down rows. What's happening here? And I'm watching. Finally, I finished conversations, and Glenn's still back there, and I'm like, Glenn, what are you doing? Hey, preacher. He said, I'm just doing what you said last month. I said, um, pardon my ignorance, but what, what did I say? And secondly, I'm so surprised that somebody listened to me. What, <laughs> what, did, what did you hear me say? He said, you, you said find a need that wasn't being met and meet it. And after church, every Sunday, I noticed people leaving their bulletins on the floor and in the chairs and stuff, and they just walk out and leave them there and dirty Kleenexes and, and mint wrappers and everything else. Uh, nobody else is doing that. I figured I, just, I could do that. Man, you're staying around after church picking up pieces of paper. We got a cleaning crew that's coming in tonight. But yeah, how much nicer would it be if they didn't have to do that? I found the need, and I'm meeting it. My heart melted. Thank you, Jesus, for Glenn. 
What a heart. Instead of complaining about these young people who just throw things everywhere, uh, let me just pick it up. Let me just pick it up. What can I do to serve others? Last thing, we need to be hungry followers of Christ. I need to find the truth and just live it out. This is not radical. It's not debatable. It's not unreasonable. It's simply the truth of what it means to live your life in a manner worthy of Christ. Find the truth. Live it. Find the truth. Live it. Speaking the truth in love, verse 15. We are to grow up in all aspects in the hymn who's the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, how many times are you going to hear me say in this one sermon, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building of itself up in love. Things work like clockwork in the body of Christ when people function in the body of Christ like the gears and the wheels and the springs in the clock. Each part taking seriously his or her calling to fulfill everything God's given you to do. What a privilege. What an honor that God has called us into that service and has entrusted us with such a great privilege. Let's pray together. Father, in the sweet name of the Master, we thank you that you, Lord Jesus, have given us as a church the opportunity to step back during this transition period and regroup, rethink, reorder our priorities, understand once again what it is that you've called us to be, and then set our hearts wholeheartedly to pursue the very thing that you've called the body of Christ to be. A people who've been made alive together. We who are dead in our transgressions. We've been made alive together. And we exist by, for, and from you to be able to bring honor and glory to your name. And to walk in a manner that's truly worthy of you in every way. Father, if this church is like many other churches I know, and I'm pretty sure it is. Lord, there needs to be some repentance. There needs to be some brokenness from the hardened ways of thinking we've got to have it our way and be able to come to the place, no, Lord, we need to have it your way. And Father, may we be faithful in pursuing that, going hard after it, and being content only when we have found what brings delight to your heart. Lord, may we come to you now with humble hearts, as servants of the master and ask you to speak so that we can say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. And once we hear, Lord, we will do according to all that we know for Christ's sake. Amen.